if I asked you what the most painful experience in your life so far has been, would you know what the answer was? I could probably tell you what my most painful moment was. I was a wee kid, I fell backwards, I hit my head off the back of the table and for whatever reason, instead of taking me to um, A&E where accident and emergency that is a hospital where I could have got some anesthetics my mum my decided to just stitch my head up with a needle with no anesthetic I think that and maybe like getting my finger trapped in the hinge of a deck chair those two moments are probably the most painful of my life I, I think the stitch the the having a, a a needle a metal point go under my skin and back out again several times was a very very intense form of pain the most intense that I've experienced very sharp uh, very extreme and I'm um, the reason I'm bringing that up is because this book in today's episode is a book of extremes pain is one of the extremes but there's you know violence writ large uh, pleasure sexual pleasure um, is in there uh, but also like extremes in how you live your life you know, should you go for a quiet life? Should you strike a middle path? Or should you try and really exert yourself? Is one of the best things you can do to completely assert yourself to overcome yourself, overcome society, overcome the ties and restrictions other people place on you? Is that the way to go? And whether it is or whether it isn't, does it make for an interesting book? I think it does. That's probably why I was happy to do an episode on this one. It's Moyan's Sandalwood Death, and my guest is going to be none other than friend of the pod, Stefan Rusinov, who's in this episode will be coming on to the show for a second time. That's very exciting. But before I charge ahead with that interview, I'm going to take us into the news section of this show, the Trotrific News, translated Chinese fiction news. So the first news item, it's a, sort of a follow-up to the last episode that we did, which was on Han Song's hospital. Uh, the translator of that book, Michael Berry, has translated a blog that Han Song wrote. Um, it's sort of a, well, it's called A Record of My Battle with the Virus. I've read this one. So Han Song is sort of looking back on his experiences in hospitals, one or two health problems of his own, and has, I believe, more or less survived at least one um, case of, of COVID-19. So it's a sort of a view from on the ground of what's going on in, in China right now with COVID. It's not, uh, it, you know, it's a realistic, uh, I suppose, picture. It's not bombastically good or bad. He just delivers you the facts as he's experienced them. Well, he doesn't deliver you the facts, he delivers you his own experiences, the facts of his own experiences. And then at the end, he, he gets a little um, literary and, and weird with it, citing his his own hospital trilogy right at the end. Uh, so that's available to read. There's a link to that in the show notes. It's called A Record of My Battle with the Virus by Han Song. Next news item, uh, there's a call for submissions. It's about uh, the author, Hong Kong author Shishi, who passed away very recently. So the publisher behind this call for submissions, I believe, is the Cha Journal. They're looking for writing about or inspired by the works of Shishi. So if Shishi is a writer that you know about or are interested in, then this is probably one for you. Go check it out. Okay, the third news item 
It's a new book in translation that's come out. It is some wuxia translated by Deathblade. It's another novel by Gulong. He's put this one out for free. The the novel in question is Blood Parrot. I believe it's um I don't know. I don't really know much about this one. I believe it's um it's it's very Gulongish, so violent, edgy, maybe a little bit funny. And like I said, this one is up for free by a very hardworking and conscientious uh, online translator, Deathblade, aka Jeremy Bai. So again, there's a link to that in the show notes. It's called Blood Pirate. Okay, last news item. This one is something I thought it would be nice to throw in a link to. Uh, the South China Morning Post has written a review, kind of overview slash review of The Wandering Earth 2, which is the new prequel to the a new film prequel to The Wandering Earth. Uh, the film is set during uh, the sort of preparation for making uh, The Wandering Earth that the first story is set on. So fans, of, readers or fans of the novella that The Wandering Earth film is based on, the Shin's novella, might get a bit more out of this one. From, from what the reviews say, this is better than the first one. I would like to believe the reviews. I've not seen the film yet. Um, I was a bit disappointed by the first one. Perhaps my expectations were too high, but um, my expectations are being raised up again by all these positive reviews. So, yeah. Um, I'll, I suppose I'll share my own thoughts once I watch this film, but in the meantime, if you've seen it or if you haven't, you know, I've linked to that review on the South China Morning Post, but I'm sure there's other equally interesting reviews out there. So that's all for the Trishific News. Now it's time for uh, the interview, so you can listen to me and Stefan discuss this absolutely insane novel, Sandalwood Death. Please enjoy. On the show, we have Stefan Rusinov back again for a second time. Uh, the last time you were here, Stefan, it was to talk about Sanshra. So what's been up with you since then? Hello, Angus. Uh, thanks for inviting me again. And first of all, I apologize for my Eastern European line, uh, accent with which I'm going to torture your listeners. And I know I was the uh, substitute player for this one. You wanted to invite Howard Goldblatt, the translator of the book that we're going to talk about. You wanted to invite Howard Goldblatt and it would have been really nice to talk with him, for you to talk to him uh, about this book. Uh, but now we'll get the chance to bitch about his translation and about him. So <laughs> maybe that's nice. I I don't remember when we recorded the Times Square episode. Was it like 2020 or something like that? Uh, that sounds right. Yeah. Yeah, a lot something has like happened. That. Yet, like some standard but major events, life events happened. First of all, I settled in a new city, uh, which is allegedly one of the oldest cities in Europe. It's called Plovdiv, mm. uh, and uh, it's older than Bulgaria. So it was it was uh, it used to be a Roman city, and then back before it was used to be a Thracian city. And by the way, you're more than welcome to come visit. Uh, my wife said that she's going to cook you some Bulgarian trees if you come. So I wouldn't miss that. Nice. Uh, speaking of my wife, I got mar married last year, which is, it has been fun so far. It's been more than a year. Then I became a father four months ago, which has also oh, been yeah. fun. Yeah. And I have a newborn in the next room, maybe. My wife is going to come at some point to change his diapers or something like that. Maybe we'll be able to hear his voice. And I finished the Lutasin trilogy, the Remembers of Words Past oh, yeah. trilogy. So I translated that into Bulgarian. The third volume came out last year. 
And uh, yeah, that's about it, I think. I probably already said congratulations on your marriage and your baby, but again, and from the listeners, congrats. That's awesome. And well done as well for finishing three body. Yeah, that's really happy as well. Really happy. That was that was a that was hard. Uh, it was a lot of work, but it was really interesting and really gratifying at the end. Yeah. All right. And what's what's next up on your translator uh, chopping block? Oh, well, I might have to put translation aside because last actually this month I took my PhD exam. So I am going to do a PhD and my major this time will be we have this uh, discipline here called Western European literature. It's a very typical thing for uh, Eastern European countries, I think, to have this uh, discipline. And my knowledge of this discipline is very, very, very limited, but I decided to take up this challenge. Uh, so I took the exam and now I'm going to compare uh, Chinese avant-garde writers from the 80s with the European avant-gardeist movement and also the some modernist writers, I guess. And yeah, that, that's pretty much it. That's excellent. That sounds like, well, the only story I can think of that we've covered on the show that fits that exactly would be um, Gofei's Flock of Brown Birds. Yeah, yeah. I haven't really delved into Gofei's work so much. I will have to. Uh, I'm thinking right now more of Tanshue, of course. Uh, Yuhua's short stories from the 80s, which are great. I love them and I would like to translate them at some point. And actually, there's uh, the the Chinese Nobel laureate Gao Xinjian. Mm. Uh, he, I think he should be considered an avant-gardist writer, but writer. But I haven't seen him in any anthologies and collections and uh, essays or articles about avant-gardism. But uh, it might be worth it to check him out as well. Very nice. Speaking of uh, checking things out. And speaking of the chopping block that I mentioned a minute ago, I thought we could get to the book. It's a Muyan, so he, we've done him once on the show before, but not mm -hmm. one of his novels, just a no novella yeah. or maybe even a long short story. Um, and that was Radish, uh, Toming the Toming the Honglo Bo, I believe is the, the Chinese title. That was also yeah. an episode also long ago. Uh, this book that we're doing today is Sandalwood Death. So that's Tan Xiang Xing, I believe, is the original yeah. name. And like you said, you translated this one, and the English language translator was none other than Mr. Howard Goldblatt. Yeah. I, I had a crack at getting him on. I got so close. I had an email oh, exchange man. with him. Oh, and man. then maybe if I had written my emails in a slightly different way, we'd, he'd be here. There'd be... Four of us in the room. There'd be me, you, the recording robot, and Mr. Uh, Goldblatt. No, I wouldn't have come. It would have been nice to just be, because he participates in so little uh, like public events. It would have been nice if he agreed to do the show to for him to be by himself. I guess, but yeah, what do you do? Indeed, yeah. We tried to get Lutasin to come to visit the Bulgarian uh, Science Fest, but he declined. So I know how you feel. Oh, that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That sucks. You just need to work on developing Bulgarian sci fi, sort of like Chinese government style, get the government involved. <laughs> you think that will work? 
it Maybe. might get his attention. Yeah. So yeah, we don't have Howard Goldblatt, but we do have the translator uh, from Chinese to Bulgarian of the book. Yeah. Um, so listeners may know Moyan. If you don't, essentially, the, th- the big thing to know is he's well maybe the big thing to know is he's the he's china's only winner of the nobel prize for literature if you don't include gao xinjian who right. won it but was a french citizen at the time right um he moyan writes he's i guess he he made it big in the 80s but he's he's been putting out novels and what have you since he writes in a somewhat magical realist but also somewhat realist style i think it maybe depends Based on my understanding, it can depend a bit on the story. Some of, I, I believe as well, some of his stuff will be set in historical periods. Some will be more recent, from what I understand. Uh, Radish was set all the way back in the 50s. Right. This one's set even further back. He wrote this, I believe, in the 90s, but it's set around the turn, the, the, the dawn of the 20th century, if I, if I have my timing right, around the time yeah. of the Boxer Rebellion. So it was published uh, in 2000 and one in Chinese, uh, ex- actually, exactly, almost exactly a hundred years from the Boxer, after the Boxer Rebellion. Mm. Yeah. I'm just going to check when this translation came out. And yeah, that was 2008 or something like that. 2013, apparently. Oh, after the Nobel Prize. That was, that's interesting. Yeah. It's a, it's a, a Chinese Literature Today series um, edition. So. Chinese literature today for list. Um, you might know this, Stefan, but it's uh, for listeners. Mm. It's a journal, an academic journal, all about Chinese literature. It's tied to the University of Oklahoma, which is where Howard Goldblatt is tied to. So I believe quite a lot of these CLT series books are Howard Goldblatt translations. I think so. And yeah, they're. I think they're quite cool because they may be from an uh, an academic press, but they have quite nice looking covers. This one's a pretty nice product, and sure. it's a it's a really great novel. It's not just a boring piece of uh, high-minded blockish text that no one's ever going to get through. It's a very good read, I think. I'm curious to hear what you think about it and what do you like about it. But I guess we'll get to that. Yeah, for sure. I I have a trick these days for summarizing books. I have been using this in my Patreon episodes, but I think it works pretty well in the main ones as well. <laughs> you were even. The, the, the blurb on the back. Exactly. <laughs> Rather than trying to summarize the plot, I'll just read the blurb and then yeah, go. if if it misses anything or if we can give more the listeners more useful info, we can fill it in. Well, so uh, uh, this a little disclaimer, I translated this. Well, I translated it in 2014 and 2015, I think, and it came out in 2016 in Bulgaria. And I haven't gotten back to it since then. So... Um, hmm. I cannot really say that I remember everything, but it's still the impression it gave me is still kind of strong. So we'll mm. see. Actually, before I plunge into the blurb, I should ask you more about the, your connection with with the translation. Um, how did that come about? Is it an interesting uh, yeah. story? It, to me, it is. To me, it is. Uh, so <laughs> I uh, graduated from my master's in Wuhan in 2012. And I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I came back to Bulgaria and I was translating stuff and I tried to uh, like reach some publishing houses uh, to publish this uh, contemporary avant-garde writer. 
and no one really gave a shit about him, so uh, no one really wanted to publish it. I didn't really know what I was going to do. I was thinking about doing farming as well, like growing tomatoes yeah. and stuff like that. Uh, and October 2012, like two months after I came back from China, Moyen wins the Nobel Prize. And no one knows a fuck about uh, Moyen in Bulgaria. Like no one's ever heard about, about him. Uh, he's never been translated. No one's really ever mentioned him. I don't even remember if we've studied or even mentioned him in our contemporary Chinese literature class in the university. So people are curious and are starting to look for uh, someone who knows something about him. So naturally they reach to my Chinese literature, uh, contemporary Chinese literature teacher. And he's really cool, but he's kind of lazy and he doesn't really want to do the uh, public uh, speaking and stuff like that. So uh, he tells them, well, there's this guy that just came back from China and his major is uh, uh, contemporary Chinese literature. Ask him. So people start calling me and I started start going to TV studios and talk about Moen, although I've just read a couple of his stories. <laughs> right. And yeah, I, I guess people started to uh, know me and that I do Chinese literature. And several years after that, the publishing house wants to do two of his novels. Sandalwood Dead and Life and Death are wearing me out. Wow. They did Life and Death are wearing me out first. And they gave, I don't know if I'm supposed to say this, but they gave Sandalwood Dead to someone else uh, who did a really shitty job. But the thing is that they translated the whole thing, like the whole book, and it's a really big book. And they asked me to kind of uh, read their translation and evaluate it. And it, it really sucked. Like it, it couldn't be read in Bulgarian at all. Okay. And I was really, really young back then, but they asked me to do it. And I wasn't sure because I was really scared because Moyen's like vocabulary and style were way beyond me back then. Uh, like, uh, for example, his vocabulary is way, in Chinese is way richer than mine in Bulgarian. Mm. Uh, so I was really scared, but I, ac I accepted it and was really stressed while, while were, I, were, I was doing it. But I did it. I don't know if I did a good job, but it was a really, really good adventure. And yeah, I, uh, and uh, it helped me. It helped me grow as a translator. And I keep it. How do I say it in English? Uh, I keep it as a warm memory in my heart, like uh, in my professional trajectory. And it got nominated for a national translation award, national oh. national book award. So. I guess that was a kind of a recognition too. If nice. if awards mean anything, of course. Mm. I'm sure they do. Yeah, but right. uh, you have a uh, you have a question about translation uh, after that, so we're going to talk about the translation. It's yeah. very interesting. We can yeah. get to that absolutely. Yeah. Right. So time for the barb. Here we go. This powerful novel by Mo Yan, one of contemporary China's most famous and prolific writers is both a stirring love story and an unsparing critique of political corruption during the final years of the Qing dynasty, China's last imperial epoch. Sandalwood Death is set during the Boxer Rebellion of 1898-1991, an anti-imperialist struggle waged by North China's farmers and craftsmen in opposition to Western influence. Against a broad historical canvas, the novel centers on the interplay between its female protagonist Sun Mei Niang and the three paternal figures in her life. One of these men is her biological father, Sun Bing, an opera virtuoso and the leader of the Boxer Rebellion. As the bitter events surrounding the revolt unfold, 
we watch Sun Bing march toward his cruel fate, the gruesome sandalwood punishment, whose purpose, as in crucifixions, is to keep the condemned individual alive in mind-numbing pain as long as possible. Filled with sensual imagery and lacerating expressions for which Moyan is so celebrated, sandalwood death brilliantly exhibits a range of artistic styles from stylized arias and poetry to the antiquated antiquated <laughs> tsk, 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 antiquated idiom of late imperial china to contemporary prose its starkly beautiful language is here masterfully rendered into english by renowned translator howard goldblatt i think the final paragraph is doing it it's telling you what makes the thing special the rest is i guess telling the the bit before that about the sandalwood death is the plot and then before that it's the it's political the background the historical background yeah yeah i guess yeah. so so yeah. The, i don't know it's uh what i what i can remember like really briefly is uh, it's a story about uh so obviously we're in we're in sindau and the germans are, are there and are trying to build a railroad which is really main to the story and um uh they're causing some uh some trouble and a local opera singer leads a revolt <laughs> against them and uh, it's a really epic revolt very tragic and very funny as well to me at least and he ends up in prison and his daughter wants to free him and his daughter is married to this uh guy who is uh uh how do you call it mentally handicapped and his father the guy's father is like the the uh empire's best executioner and he comes there to execute Sumbing, the leader of the revolt and there is also the 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 magistrate uh, how do you call it yeah the local local what's the word official help me yeah local official who's in charge of everything and he's kind of um uh, he's a he's the lover of um of uh, Sumbing's daughter uh, uh but he also has to serve the government and the and the Germans uh and I think his his character is really funny because he's he's really uh between the two opposites like he's most um he's the one who's most uh, like torn between the um, uh different interests that are in this story and it's very funny to see him struggle with with that to me yeah he's to me he was maybe the most interesting character because he's um he seems to be a lot more educated and smart than the other characters but yeah. it seems like that just gives him more um more refined ways to mess everything up and to be a bad person <laughs> right he's right. able to be yeah. a bad person but be smart about it unlike say the executioner um yeah yeah, yeah. um but again think, he's a, there there aren't really any uh i don't know if you agree with this but there aren't really any bad characters or good characters in this story i mean everything has something good and bad in them like the, the there isn't a single person who'd say yeah this guy is the, the 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 hero of the story or something like that not out of these these main characters um, yeah. maybe some of the secondary characters you could write yeah, like, off as being nasty. Yeah, like who? Um, it's called von Kettler, the German, the main German authority in the area. Maybe 
empress okay. so she she doesn't go right. across. That's right. an interesting thing. You have um like these real historical figures like Von yeah. Kettler was a real guy. So she um if you know your history, obviously she's real. Yeah. Um and we even have a guy who would go on to do things after the fall of the Qing. Uh the governor of Shandong province at the time is that's terrible. I'm blanking on his name. Oh dear. He was the guy that installed himself as emperor. Uh, oh, Yuan Shikai. Right, right, Yuan Shikai. Right. Yeah, Yuan Shikai comes across as a bit of an asshole in this one as well. That's true. That's true. But there's, there's still, there's still very, very complex. Not very, but, and it's, it's very interesting how Moyan makes fun of them too. Um, he puts like lines in their mouths that sound really funny. He exaggerates their, their characters, I think. Mm. And uh, at, at least to me, that that was uh, I sense that Moyan really wanted to make fun of that, but not in a disrespectful kind of way, I guess. I felt like the 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 bit where it says um, in this blurb where it says sensual imagery, lacerating expressions, stylized areas, masterfully rendered, starkly beautiful. I felt like those weren't just cheap words that mm. whatever he was trying to do is the book is hard to put into words, but it's supposed to be very, it's the words on the page are supposed to create a strong sensory effect oh, in yeah. your mind. Um, oh, yeah. It's supposed to, whether it's because it's darkly funny, because the characters are larger than life, because the events are either, you know, very violent or very yeah. um, sensual or very sudden. It's not, Although the the um the way the characters are drawn is is um what's the word uh, intricate and uh, complex, it's not yeah. necessarily a subtle form of complexity. It's a more sort of turn everything, maybe not turn everything up to eleven, but turn everything up to like eight or nine, mm. if you know what mm. I mean, and yeah, turn up lots I of do. dials. So don't yeah. just turn up the politics dial. Turn up the humor dial. Turn up the music dial. Turn up the um. The violence, magical, the magical realism, surreal stuff, violence, <laughs> yeah. and also like just yeah, bringing in historical figures as well. It yeah. makes the stake. It makes it gives it a level of reality, knowing that you know a few chapters in. Um, that's terrible. I forgot his name again. Um, the governor, Yuan Shikai, Yuan Shikai, is gonna is gonna show up. He's, he's they're doing. They're not just talking about him. Like he literally shows up, yeah. and then even the Dowager Empress shows up. I I thought I'd mention for listeners uh, who maybe don't know their their Muyan so well. It's not by chance that he's picked Germans as the evil Europeans here. He's it's the the German. I think the only Europeans we meet in the book, uh, only colon, European colonizers we meet. Are the Germans, and that's because, um, well, Muyan is from this place called Gaomi County in Shandong Province, which is on the bit of Shandong where Qingdao is. This thing called the Jiaodong Peninsula, the sticky out bit of Shandong, and at this time in history, that was a German colony. This was like the one part of the Qing, Qing Dynasty China that mm. Germany had stolen for itself, essentially. Um, they governed it, governed it as an area called Jiaozhou. So all the action is happening in an area where, like, there's sort of a dual government. The Chinese authorities are basically managing things on behalf of the German colonizers. Right. Right. And everyone who's involved in the imperial bureaucracy is essentially implicated in the colonialism 
um, and the the oppression. Well, there there are things being constructed, uh, but it's not to really to benefit the local people. Like mm. industry is being built up. There's a railroad being built up, yeah. but it's all the the local people, the local Chinese people are getting none of the benefits, and they're being upset. And if they complain, they they get murdered basically. And that's that's the sort of fire that's under all the characters that drives the plot forward. Uh, and I think he's balancing the description of this historical background very well with digging into the interpersonal relationships and um, describing uh, the character's feelings and also getting into some details and de describing it in a very liter literary way. Uh, I wouldn't say that it's ne necessarily uh, historical novel or he's trying to just uh, to use a story to tell us what was back then uh, he is really digging into his characters and their relationships and he's really trying to um, to make great literature of that because it's not a first of all it's not a straight very it's not a straightforward uh, narrative it's a very complex, it's very mixed, and it's very typical of the writers that started writing in the 80s to play with time and to not tell the story in a chronological way, but to kind of uh, mix it up uh, and to create this uh, chaotic effect, I guess, uh, because we have to kind of... Uh, it's, a, it's a little difficult for us to, to put it all together uh to say which one which comes first which comes after what and that is a thing that moyen really cares about i think he wants the novels to be uh, difficult to read he believes that uh the reader should put an effort to understand the novel and that's that's the whole point of the novel novels shouldn't be easy they should be hard to read mm, i definitely for the first few chapters, I kind of struggled to get my head around what was going on. Once right. I was past a certain, I, I think even at that time, the plot was still moving forward. So it wasn't that he was writing a, a dull story. It was just, yeah, like the sort of scattered um, style of narrative was, I had to like get into whatever rhythm he was going for. Yeah. Once I was on board, I started going through the book, the book much more quickly. Um, well, it's a very, very interesting structure. So we get the first part where we have four different narrators, which yeah. are uh, the uh, four of the five main characters. Then we get the middle part, which is called in a third, uh, which is uh, told in a third person narrative. And then we get the last part where we have the five main characters uh, narrate the story from the first person again, uh, which is a very interesting endeavor to me. It's a very know, uh, admirable to be able to write a novel from so six different perspectives. So it's kind of a literary cubism, if you can call it that way. Uh, uh, we get yeah. the we get the same story told from different perspectives, and we get to um, know the uh, story from the different characters' uh, feelings toward it. So apparently every character has different feelings and different receptions of the story. So I think that is a very interesting narrative uh, method to explore. And I think that Moyen does it very good here, although 
maybe it's it's really more interesting when you get to uh, when you get a story like that where there are uh, discrepancies between the uh, different narratives. For example, one person would tell a story and another person will tell the same story, but there will be uh, different facts, like facts that don't fit together. Like, for example, Rashomon, the, the movie by Akira Kurosawa, or if you, if you will, Citizen Kane or something like that. Uh, but we don't get that in Namoya, in this novel, I think. Uh, yeah. The story is pretty much fit, fit, fit together, just the, the emotions are, are different and the way they are told are different because it's uh, one thing when uh, the magistrate, the official, tells the story with his elegant and uh, sophisticated uh, way of speaking and another thing when the Zhao Xiaojia, which is the retarded uh, son of the executioner, uh, tells the story. Yeah. The I think you, you're right to say there's a kind of a cubism going on with the nar the different narrators, because, well, number one, we have it, we have third person and first person both in here, but also it's not like say one of the Game of Thrones, uh, right. Song of Ice and Fire books, where yeah there are different, I guess they're not first person, they're different. You get different third person, like over the shoulder views of different characters, right. but they're all in the same literary style, a very simple okay. style made to just help you read the book. Whereas okay. here, like the way I think it helps that it's first person, but like the way people, the, the different characters see the world through their own filter and the things they okay. focus on show up in the chapters. Like, and he doesn't, I also think you're right to say he doesn't want to make it easy for you because the first, from what I remember, the first couple of narrators are Mainyang, who seems to have a complete um, high-speed rail speed mind. Oh she yeah, doesn't she's really, nuts. She's not. She's, she's very. <laughs> she's very angry. She's very angry. She's, she's angry. Like, she's spitting fire, <laughs> and she doesn't. At least in this first chapter, from what I remember, she doesn't really stay on one topic for more than a few paragraphs. She's completely scatterbrained. Yeah, yeah. And she's always addressing people she's pissed off with in her head. And it's it's a good intro to the other characters because she's pissed off with all the father figures and men in yeah. her life who yeah, are all the other yeah. main characters. She's she's the only main female character. No right. wonder she's so pissed off. Maybe. <laughs> um, yeah, but uh, I think I think I, w I wasn't right about uh, saying that um, the the same story is told by uh, different characters because actually they're not they're not t telling the same story that they're, they're telling different parts of the same story. So so there's right. not a repetition uh, like Rashomon. Uh, right. Different persons telling exactly the same events. No, different persons tell different events from the same plot. It's more uh, precise to say here. Yeah, I think the magistrate, um, what's he called, Qian, Qian Ding, Qian he's, yeah. his chapters, I think, for me, were the easiest to read because he's the guy that's focused on the sort of political trouble <laughs> that's being, like, he's the one who has an eye on what's actually going on um, and is in charge of managing the disruption and, and whatnot. Everyone else is just sort of dealing with their own um, issues. So Sun okay. Meiyang is having her affair. I guess Sun, Sun Bing is driving the plot forward as well because he's in the Boxer Rebellion. But then uh, yeah. Xiao Jia, the mentally challenged husband, he's just hallucinating animals half the time. He's in yeah, his own world, totally. Right. 
yeah, like literally like we get uh, when he, we see the story from his perspective uh everyone in the novel becomes like uh, panthers and and uh, monkeys and stuff like that so we get um yeah yeah and it, it's it's really described like the panther goes there and jumps and some uh, stuff like that so that i guess that's the magical realism part yeah and then when we were with uh Zhao Jia, the executioner that feels like everything he's focused on felt to me like Moyan going into the more bizarre literary sort of uh, experimental zones where he he tries to get he he gives us a view of a guy who is obsessed with his craft and, and an art and his art form and it's been his life but that art form is torturing people in the service of a yeah. like a feudal regime and that's no small literary feat um i saw one review um just before this call that said this is a great book the one problem is that it doesn't condemn the executioner and it goes into horrific detail about what he does to people. Well, we we'll do thought, get well, yeah, a 10-page description of a punishment, yeah, of a torture. Yeah. Yeah. And I think on one hand, yeah, of course that's disturbing, but it's not the same book if it's not there. It's a much more uh, plain book without the thing it's named after, the Sandalwood Death. Well, that is what Moyen is uh has said num like a numerous times uh including in his uh Nobel lecture i think that he likes to explore this um uh muddy territory between good and evil between between good and bad uh where things are not really set where you don't really know what to to think about things because uh really uh we get some kind of um how do you call it uh admiration for torture uh but because that's because we see it described by the torturer his, uh, himself by the executioner and there are several lines which i think are really funny and i think that i sense that moyan is uh, really exaggerating this uh for a comic effect for example when Zhao Jia tries to get his son Zhao Xiaojia to join him uh, and to help him uh, with tortures. Uh, so Zhao Xiaojia, his son is, uh, uh, what is his profession in, uh, in English? Like a slaughter? A so, butcher. Uh, he, a butcher, yeah. He's a butcher. And he's saying that uh, butchery and torturing are all the same. They're all slaughtering, but slaughtering uh, animals is like um, very inferior. Uh, but uh, slaughtering persons, slaughtering people is uh, is uh, very I know, superior. And uh, so uh, we also get that everything in China is really uh, backwards and uh, and uh, not progressive, but our tortures are very progressive and, uh, and very uh, very excellent. Uh, all, all kinds of that uh, are really, uh, I think, very ironic comments, and uh, he doesn't really mm, say anything against uh, the torture. But there are very, very there there are a lot of ironic remarks like that. And another thing is that, uh, and I think this is valid for all of Moyan's work that I, works that I've read is that you I cannot really sense. Moyan himself in these stories. Like uh, after I've read several of his novels and a lot of his short stories, I don't really have an image 
of the author. I, I don't have an impression about him. So he, he conceals uh, his voice very well, I think. Uh, so Moyen means don't speak. And I think in some way that's what he does in, in uh, his writing. He doesn't speak and he lets his characters speak. And I think his writing is very, uh, eh, where's the word? Uh, e egoless. <laughs> what is the, where's the word of a person who? Egoless. I can't, I can't think of a good word for egoless, but yeah. the meaning is clear. I see what you mean. Yeah. Yeah. No, I can't think of a good word for that. But yeah, the the author is not trying selfless. to sort of selfless. Selfless. It's interesting yeah. because I, I yeah, I did get the feeling that he was trying to make a fully rounded novel, and that like I, I've only read one other thing by him, uh, Radish, but it felt like quite a different narrator. But at the same time, he was really. It seems like although I'm reading this in translation, it seems like really he was really um, swinging for the fences, trying to do something interesting. With language, like there's there's parts where I think Howard Goldblatt he says in his intro he had an awful time because there's parts of the or perhaps an engaging challenge. I don't know if it was awful, but yeah. there's parts of the book that are written to be like a in a, a Chinese opera style. Uh, and so like, Chiang means opera, and they have a kind of opera in this part of Shandong called Cat Opera. So that would be Mao for cat, Chiang for opera, Mao Chiang, and Moyen has tried to write some parts of the book, including like intros to chapters in that yeah. style. Yeah. And then Howard Goldblatt's done that by writing in a sort of affected way, um, using using brackets, using sort of lyrical sentences. So yeah, it seems like it's quite an, quite an ambitious um, go at writing something very special. Uh, see, it's very interesting that uh, actually this uh, opera, which is called Mao Tiang, uh, the original character is not the character for oh, cat. It's right. another one, and I don't know what it means, but I guess it's just an. Um, so Chinese operas from different regions have their specific characters, and I don't know where they originate from. Uh, and for some reason, Moyan changed it to to cat opera, and there's a lot of mewing. Like in the right. novel, like uh, when there there's a song, there uh, there are a lot of uh, there's a lot of cat references in in the novel, yeah. Right. Which was really funny as, as well. I mean, there's this really serious story and a tragic story, and someone comes to sing and he's mewing <laughs> and like there's meow 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 all the time. <laughs> This yeah. is, uh, I mean, this is another signal for me that just Moyen is uh, having fun and uh, messing around with the with the storytelling. I'm trying to find a good bit that has the the meow meows. <laughs> it. It, it feels extra funny in the age of the internet because um, the, a lot of the meows have the little curly uh, punctuation mark after it that I know a lot of people, at least on on WeChat, you'd see people usually women using that to be. Yeah. Cute. You know the little squiggle. Yeah. So you'll have like a vivid description of a horrible execution, and then the next paragraph will just be meow meow, and right. then right. little squiggle right. on it. <laughs> Let me try and find a good one. Uh, I think this would do it. So this is one of the arias that opens chapter seventeen. It says it's a childish aria. Right. Uh, so so this must go. be Zhao Xiaojia's part, I guess. Yeah. 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 He seems to. I think. I think he's he gets infected by this meowing first, but then uh, 
a lot of opera singers show up to sort of protest um, Sun Bing's execution and they start meowing and it becomes a yeah like it felt to me reading anyway a really weird mix of uh, tragedy horror and quite childish comedy because all yeah. these people are meowing and I couldn't mm. tell if that was lost in translation or, or, or what uh, so yeah here we go sandalwood steaks tested on a pig dear dear training me to match his masterful skills all to impale Sunbing from the bottom up. Pound in the steak. Ah, pound in the steak. Pound in the steak. Meow, meow, meow. A raucous crowd comes our way down the street. A cannon fires. Bad news brings a change to my eyes. And then skipping forward a few lines. It is, it is Yuan Shikai, that bastard of feet. A high official who is no match for my dear. Meow, meow, meow. Meow. And then <laughs> it's the end of the aria. Right. Well, uh, I guess we, we have to say that so, uh, in, uh, I think in the chapter that is now narrated by Sumbin, which is one of the last chapters, um, uh, Mo Yan gives a description about how Mao Tiang came to be what it is. And there's a description of uh, someone, maybe Sumbin, I don't remember, wearing a, a cat suit which of course is made by real cat skin uh, and that's how it started according to the legend in the in the novel uh, so that's why i guess i guess this is a a, a very it is funny but to it it plays a very solemn role in uh, the people's revolt i think like this is in in some way the the novel is about the battle between the train and the and the opera, because the train is what is the foreign, the 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 the, uh, the other, and the the opera is the local, our our own stuff here, and uh, for them putting on cat suits and and mewing and uh, meowing uh, at uh, the oppressors is uh, is a very powerful way to revolt, I think. Uh, it's very yeah. funny as well, uh, but it's uh, very, very powerful as well. I, mm -hmm. I can appreciate uh, Moyan mixing these, uh, these, um, how do you call it, two feelings together. Well, in the spirit of this book, if things get any worse here in the UK, I'm putting on my cat suit and I'm riding the train down to London. Okay. I'm going to meow at our prime right. minister. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, do it. Go for it. Yeah. If all else fails, you know, yeah, yeah, use that approach. Um, gosh, what was I? Oh, yes. So speaking of the the railway and the the traditional local culture, um, I was I was just saying to you before we started recording that there's an there's a sort of a afterward a note from the author Moyen right. as well as an intro from the translator Haragulbat start at the start, and um, a really quite interesting thing is that Moyen says when he started writing the book he was sort of focused on the local memories of the trains so he had grandfathers and grandmothers and uh, who, who were around when the area was the, a german colony and were there when this railway was being built so there are sort and he was saying there's sort of a collective memory in the community of the sounds of trains and so on and he used that auditory environment to try and inspire his writing and really was really quite focused on the trains but then when he reviewed his draft he felt it was too close to magical realism mm -hmm. and that's interesting because um that the question of whether the work was magical realist or not 
uh, came up when we we're talking about radish and it seems like a lot of it's a, sort of a you know a classic question um you you could have looking at a lot of writing from this time from like Moyan mm. uh maybe Yuhua maybe oh dear there's another guy I've done him on the show um praise the red lantern um Sutong Sutong yeah all that yeah. sort of generation of authors and so Moyan was like no this is too magical realist and his decision was, I need to make this more Chinese. So he must have been thinking of magical realism as a foreign genre. Um, so his way of doing that was bringing in the Mao Qiang opera, which he'd also sort of grown up right. uh, hearing about. And I think he even, he said he collaborated with a storyteller who would tell stories through through song or through opera. And he did yeah. some kind of collaboration. It's not just us um, making assumptions when we, if, if we say something like he tried to write a very tradition, a, a very Chinese novel with lots of Chineseness. He said himself that that was one of his aims in the in the the redraft of the book. So the and the trains were in his style tied up with the magical realism, which he seems to be positioning as the foreign genre, and the opera is his way of bringing in the Chineseness. So it's even there in his process as well as in the narrative. Yeah, but uh, speaking of that, maybe we shouldn't, uh, if your listeners haven't read the book, maybe we shouldn't give the impression that Moyen is with, with this novel putting up some nationalistic ideas or something like that. Uh, he, yeah, no. uh, in his novel speech, he is saying that he's really trying to like uh, all uh, excellent writers to uh, speak to tell the most local story that mm. he can, but with it to reach, uh, and this is very particular for, I think, the writers in the 80s, they all wanted to uh, to reach what they call the, the the common soul of humankind, something like that. So I think this can be read as a, a general human story uh the, this one and it's uh yeah um yeah you could and, read it as a comedy about in-laws yeah absolutely he moyan says that uh, with this novel it's uh, it kind of marks a turning point in his writing before that he says that he was kind of uh not sure what he was doing and he was kind of mumbling to himself and trying to tell stories but after that he he tried he gets the feeling that he's situated on a square and a lot of people are listening to him and he has to perform uh, before them. So he kind of starts to see himself as this performer. And I, and I think this is very um, obvious in this novel that, uh, like you said, it's a, it's a very sensory experience and it's not, it's not really, it's not only a story, it's, uh, it works in, in, on many levels. For sure. I thought there's another bit I could read. Um, it's from this crazy first chapter, uh, Sun, Mei, Sun Meinyang's or Meinyang's loot talk. Um, so before she just goes into like taking you through her grievances, she gives you a very strong narrative intro, which like, I think I, the reason I think of this now is that it really feels like an author who's, um, not just try not just sort of testing his, um, uh, literary skills, but also trying to thinking about his readers and audience. It has a really strong sort of 
grabbing you by the throat style, the sort of intro to a novel that you're told to write in, in writing workshops, something that immediately grabs your attention. So uh, this is it. That morning, my, go my Gongdie, Zhao Jia, could never, even in his wildest dreams, have imagined that in seven days he would die at my hands, his death more momentous than that of a loyal old dog. And never could I have imagined that I, a mere woman, would take knife in hand and with it kill my own husband's father. Even harder to believe was that this old man, who had seemingly fallen from the sky half a year earlier, was an executioner, someone who could kill without blinking. In his red tasseled skull, ta skull cap and long robe, topped by a short jacket with buttons down the front, he, he paced the courtyard, counting the beads on his Buddhist rosary, like a retired Yuan Wailang, Yuan Wailang, or better yet, I think, a Lao Tai Ye, with the house full of sons and grandsons. But he was neither a Lao Tai Ye nor a Yuan Wailang. He was the preeminent executioner in the Board of Punishments, a magician with a knife, a peerless decapitator, a man capable of inflicting the cruelest punishments, including some of his own design, a true creative genius. During his four decades in the Board of Punishments, he had, to hear him say it, lopped off more heads than the yearly output of Gaomi County watermelons. And a lot of the book is right there. There's, um, there's a bit of humor at the end there with the watermelons. There's a lacerating spoken style of writing and there's an intro to the character and it's fairly it's pretty clearly in a sort of chinese context because you've you've got both his description of his clothes but then also howard goldblatt has made a choice to keep quite a lot of words in chinese in his translation as well yeah does does he have a like a um dictionary at the end of the book explaining those words or uh, because he, that's really th 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 there was a lot of them mm. Yeah, no, I th I think he um, he says in his intro that he thinks more Chinese should be introduced into English through loanwords, and he makes a complaint that a lot of the ones we currently have are not close to the original words because they've been like misheard by idiot colonizers. Okay. Basically. Right, sure, but do, do like do you get what Yuan Wai Lang means means in this? Uh, me. No, yeah, no, I well, have to. Well, sure. Up. Well, how is that introducing new words then? <laughs> yes. Yeah, I think he's right. he's he, he's sort of maybe hubristically counting on the fact that people are going to copy him and that the words are going to enter into the mainstream. But yeah, I, I've got a list here. Um, it gives you it gives you the opinion, it gives you the Chinese characters, and then it gives you definition. Oh, so and there the, is there is one. Yeah, there is. Yeah. Oh, at okay. The end. That, that's it's okay. at the end. You'd think it would be at the start, but I guess if it's a glossary, it would go at the end. Glossary, so right. He's got Dan as in the opera role, Dia, which he's put yeah. an H on the end of, so it doesn't just say die. Right. Dia, Gan Dia, Gan Arzi, Gan Niang, Gong Dia, Jin, Kang, Lao Tai Ye, Lao Ye, Niang, Jin Jia, Xiao Ye, Shong, Shifu, Yaman, Ya Yi. Yuan Wai Lang, Zhang Yuan. I think I've rendered all of them in, into Bulgarian. I think you could make an argument for plenty of these. I think he there's somewhere he overdid it. No, it's all right. It's a translator's decision, I guess. So, yeah, his his call. True. True. So we're a little lost. Stefan does know he has something very smart he can say. <laughs> it might not pertain very much to what we were talking about a minute ago, uh, but you know what? Doesn't matter. We're on guard. No, yeah, we're okay. 
Uh, what you said about Jiaojia, about him trying to excel at something so terrible uh, as uh, executing people, uh, kind of made me think that actually all of our characters want to be like, w want to do what they're doing in a kind of a legendary way. For example, if you if you remember um, Sumen Yang, she, uh, her work is making soup, making soup from dog meat, and mm. she wants to make like the best fucking soup from dog meat that could ever exist. And uh, who, who else? Like Tianjin, uh, uh, the magistrate, he wants to be an epic magistrate. He wants to excel at being a magistrate. So. Uh, Soon Bing, of course, wants to be, and he is the most epic opera singer that could ever exist. And uh, there is this inclination of uh, living a legendary life, like um, mm. uh, it doesn't really matter if if you die, if you've lived in an epic way. Uh, and this is, of course, a very <laughs> problematic life stance, but I think it's kind of a, it's inspiring as well. For example, I want to be an epic translator as well. Like, um, I don't want to be the best translator. I want to be an epic translator. Like, I want to do a translation and I want people to say, oh man, this is, uh, how did he do that? And of course, I'll probably never do something like that. But uh, it's, a, it's a very nice, uh, it's a very nice thought. So I think this is a kind of, I felt this in other novels by novel, by Moyen that I've read as well. Uh, there's this inclination in his characters of uh, trying to lead legendary lives and yeah no matter what they do they want to be the best of the best in it that's a really good point yeah it's not just the executioner everyone has their own sort of uh, profession or art form and i think that you can i can link that to what you said about how muyan is not trying to write some he's he's bringing in chinese traditional and cultural elements but it's not for the service of like national identity or maybe it's national, some kind of local identity, but it's not for patriotism because no one is doing the things they do to like uh, build the nation or fly the yeah. flag. Even Sun being the rebel, I would say maybe he's doing something like that, but it's mostly he's just out for revenge because his family have been slaughtered by the Germans. So he's maybe out for justice. Yeah, and the German ha have fucked up the feng shui in the, in the mm. territory, in their village. So yeah. With the, yeah. with the fucking train. <laughs> right. So he's maybe the one guy that has a higher collective mission in mind, but everyone everyone else, I would, and him to some extent, I would say they're just in it for the love of what they do, being excellent mm -hmm. at something and maybe finding some kind of a transcendence from your own conditions through that. Yeah. Um, maybe some admiration is the goal as well. I guess mm -hmm. Mei Yang wants people to like her food. I guess Tian Ding, he's a very vain guy. He probably wants people to shower him with compliments for what he does. But I feel like ultimately everyone just wants to be good at something for its own sake. And like you said, sort of be epic, have something kind of bombastic or remarkable about, about what they do as well. I think that's very true. And also what I was thinking is that I don't know how uh, what your impression is, but since we get very, very little Chinese literature here in Bulgarian and whenever... Uh, Chinese novel comes out and I always get asked, get asked the question, so how does this represent China? How is this representative of, uh, of China and what can we learn uh, about Chinese history and Chinese culture from it? But what I'm always thinking is that good literature is 
almost always uh, subversive uh, in a kind of way towards uh, the culture from which it comes. So when Moyen is mm, including uh, this opera style from his hometown uh, in his novel, uh, and I think I've read interviews with him that where he says that this is almost a lost art, the this uh, opera style. So it's a commentary on uh, how the Chinese culture is not valuing uh, its local arts enough. And he's kind of trying to preserve it, but it's not a national pride. It's some kind of a more, it's a, it's a, it's a smaller kind of uh, pride with his uh, home village, which... Of course, it's part of China, but it has its own characteristics. For sure. Yeah. I thought I could move us past our sort of middle segment right. of the conversation to ask you, before I get to the miscellaneous section about uh, language, we've yeah. talked a fair bit about this before, but I want to ask a two-pronged question since you're good enough at Chinese to read a book in Chinese and I'm not, and furthermore, you translated this one. So what does Muyan's Chinese look like? Like, is he using clever techniques and when he's when he's writing things like the arias what does that look like how hard is that to read and then also how did you how did you try and bring it into bulgarian and how do your efforts match up or differ with what howard goldblatt tried to do his literary style is really really abundant and it is hard to read even for chinese people like a lot of chinese readers are having a hard time reading uh his books why because He's using a lot of uh, like strange, obscure phrases that are not very used in uh, like everyday language. Uh, and he is including phrases from like ancient Chinese and uh, dialects as well. So uh, w what I did when I translated this book was constantly, of course, uh, looking up words and phrases, not only in a dictionary, but uh, uh, looking them and used in uh, sentences around the internet, asking people, asking Moyen as well. I sent him around 150 questions uh, for this novel and he was kind enough to answer all of them because there, there were things that uh, I couldn't understand. And uh, what I probably shouldn't admit, but I will, is uh, that probably a year after I translated the book, I opened the original again at the random page and I read a random sentence and I didn't understand it uh, <laughs> because uh, I just couldn't, uh, couldn't understand the phrases. But he does use a lot of idioms and uh, very masterful things here is that the five different characters really speak in a different manner. And I don't know if you can tell this by reading Howard Goldblatt's translation. Uh, for example, like Sun Meinyan is really, like you said, uh, mm, fiery. Her, yeah, well, uh, her language is very, I don't know, vernacular. Verbal? Yeah. Yeah. It, well, he, she used, and, and also vulgar. Like, she's probably the most vulgar narrator in uh, uh, amongst the, the five. And the ending, it's, he's very, really sophisticated and uh, he uses a very elegant prose. And for example, when I was translating Sumenyang's Sume uh, narrative, it was very easy to me because I curse a lot in uh, my own uh, everyday life. And uh, her language was really close to me. Also, when I was translating the 
the mentally challenged guy. That was really easy to me as well. But when I came to Tianjin, that was a real, real problem. And I started, what I started to do was I bought the Bulgarian uh, phrasal dictionary, like a really thick volume of uh, phrases of idioms in Bulgarian, I, ju I just started reading the dictionary. So I could dig up phrases that I could use to make him sound uh, like really educated in uh, Bulgarian. And what I discovered by reading the uh, phrasal dictionary is that we don't really have this uh, in Bulgarian, this uh, high style uh, literary language. Most of our phrases, idioms are really vocal vulgar actually so i could use them for so many for example but sending i had a really uh, really big trouble by translating and i don't know what, what do you think can, can you tell by reading howard goblet's translation that they, they speak really really differently these separate characters for sure yeah okay yeah um i've thought of a good word for Minyang. she's quite unfiltered right um, right i think a, a good way to think about the characters point of view is filters. Mainyang is, she has a lot of output, she's got a lot to say, and she doesn't really control or filter it very much. Then you have Chen Ding, who has all his layers of cultural filter that affects how he takes things in and how he analyzes things, maybe draws on draws on analogies and frameworks. Of, so like, yeah, his, his speech or his thought, his train of thought is more sort of formed and sculpted. Um, and then with um, Xiao Jia, I certainly remember that it's it's much more scattered and reality is a lot more fluid because the guy's hallucinating. Um, yeah. And he has, I guess also he has a child, the, the writing style, I remember, being a bit sort of childish. It is, it's, yeah, definitely you know, is. It's, it's Qing era China. No one says, no one diagnoses what mental handicap the guy has. Yeah. Uh, but you can tell that it's, he's not just a bit slow. He's maybe had a de delayed mental development because he's kind of not only is he hallucinating, he's got a kind of a childish way of speaking or or thinking. Yeah. The ones that I don't remember so clearly clearly are Sun Bing's. Yeah. So the rebel and Zhao Jia, the executioner, maybe because their personalities are a bit more close to the baseline. Um, they're certainly interesting characters, but I don't remember the prose style being quite so stylized. But maybe I've just forgotten. Yeah, I guess I don't. Sunbing is not really very uh, di distinguishable uh, language-wise, I think. Uh, mm. And for Zhao Jia, I guess the atmosphere, the vibe there is that he's really arrogant. So that uh, influences the way he speaks and the way he thinks and the way he narrates. Mm, but but yeah, uh, that is one characteristic. And another one characteristic and another thing that I did was there is actually statistics of um, Bo uh, Bulgarian writers who use most words <laughs> in their writings. Mm. So so I read that and I got a few novels by the Bulgarian writer who uses most words <laughs> in their writing. Uh, and I read a couple of those just to, to take some vocabulary. But the problem is that there were a lot of Turkish loan words in, oh, uh, right. in these novels. So I didn't want to use too many of those because after all, we are in China in 
between the 18th uh, the 19th and the 20th century and i didn't want uh, the bulgarian reader to feel like we're uh, he's in he's in bulgaria or he or there in the in the bulgarian a uh, 19th century or something like that yeah it's mm. not gonna help matters yeah but yeah and that, that these are two funny things that i did i also read some historical uh books in order to get a feel of the the historical background and stuff yeah tiendin was the the hardest right so my next one this is in the miscellaneous set of questions it's the word of the day does any sort of uh chinese word of special words bring to mind that captures the essence of this book for you i think i think we should go for meow like the the onomatopoeia <laughs> like uh the, not, not the the word for cat but the word for mew in chinese we should go for that one self-explanatory really yeah okay and the next question this one's a bit harder i'm i was panicking because i hadn't picked one uh before before i sat down is there if you were gonna um set this one to a film and you're looking for a track a track for the soundtrack maybe the intro music something to set the scene what song would you pick and i'll throw in as a side note here i saw i think i was i think i had an auto translation of this book's chinese language wikipedia page which said moyan is on the record as having said he regrets that uh sandalwood death never been adapted into a movie so let's imagine we can make his wish come true uh what what song do we pick i think they started doing a tv tv series based on oh, it but right. i'm not sure if that ever came out well obviously we should uh include some mao tiang and i'm gonna send you a link for um uh, a video on youtube where there's a recording of a opera performance in this particular style but what i started thinking is that since this is uh, mainly a novel about opera Nevertheless, Chinese opera. I started thinking whether um, European opera has some work about revolt, mm. and I and I remember the title by a Tchaikovsky, uh, a title of a Tchaikovsky opera, which is called the Voyevoda. And Voyevoda, I don't know, in Bulgarian means a leader of a revolt, actually. Mm. Uh, but uh, I know that the Tchaikovsky opera has nothing to do with revolt. But maybe we can choose that. It's very interesting when you listen to classical music and try to 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 imagine a story when you listen it. I think everything fits really, and it's a it's a really interesting. Uh, it gives you a new perspective on the story when you listen to a piece of music, and so it has uh, it has uh, slow parts and it has uh, gentle parts, but it also has the action, and I think it kind of fits the the story. Nice. Can you um, send me the name of that in the chat, just so I can? I will. And I was trying to also I was trying to find whether there's uh, some Chinese punk band that is incorporating uh, Chinese opera 
instruments, but I couldn't find oh, any. Right. But that would be I know, interesting. I know Chinese. There's Chinese metal bands that throw in uh, traditional instruments. Yeah, I think that will fit as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, the one I've got. So this was literally just I was scrolling through my music collection in panic, trying to find something that fit the mood. Right. And lucky me, I got a lot of hard rock and heavy metal on here, and I feel like the book is chaotic and violent enough to uh, excuse that. So I'm picking one called Bridge Burner by Mutoid Man. It's very fast. It's kind of punk infused. Um, don't know what you call it. Quite crunchy metal. It's um, it's not very gothic cool. or anything. It's very energetic, and it's kind of a cel- It's got a cel- celebratory mood, basically just saying, "I'm glad I burned my bridges. I'm glad to see the back of you." And it, I, it didn't really occur to me until now, but quite a lot of people burn their bridges uh, through the course of the novel. Qin Ding becomes more and more disillusioned with the role he's playing in, in the government and may or may not burn some bridges. Sun Meiyang's ready to burn some bridges from the word go. Sun Bing's whole plot trajectory is about rebelling. Mm-hmm. It's about as bridge burning as you can get. Mm-hmm. So yeah, a lot of old ties get um, immol- immolated or severed. Um, so that's, yeah, that's what I've gone for. That's cool. And that kind of makes me think about how everyone really in this story is trying to play a role and like we said they're trying to excel at this role and that's where the tragedy and the comedy comes from some of the tragedy and some of the comedy because most of them are failing or there are moments uh, certainly in the novel where they're failing and you can see that uh, this is something like an exaggerated role that they've put on themselves but it's not really who they are or they're it's not really who, it's not the whole of them. And there are cracks in the novel where you where you see how they don't fit in this role. And uh, they're really funny again, and also very tragic. Okay, our, um, our next question, or the next question I have for you is the bonus question for Patreon. So, uh, listeners, when Stefan answers this question, you are going to hear blah, 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 blah. but um, if you want to hear his answer, then you got to subscribe to this show's Patreon. It will be going up, or it will be joining the queue of uh, episodes going up. So it may not be up immediately, but it will head up there eventually. So the bonus question is this. Why? Well, I, I will give a bit of context for this first. So Sun Bing, he, he joins the Boxer Rebels. He becomes a local leader. We've established that. What we haven't mentioned is that he kind of takes on the guise of Sun Wukong, the Monkey King, and his right-hand man takes on the guise of uh, Bajie, Piggy. And other rebels dress up in other ways, like from totally different figures. Or is it, no, he's U- he's UFA, the general, right. someone else right, is Sun right, Wukong. Right. So the point being, we have two people from Journey to the West, but then we have real historical figures. So the, 
I guess it's a sort of a fantastical, um, almost magical, realist version of a boxer rebellion where the rebels have basically just dressed up as people they think are cool. So my question for you, Stefan, is if you're joining uh, the boxer rebels, who are you going to be? And that's it for the the bonus Patreon question, really. Fairly, fairly speedy one this time. Yeah. Um, just one or two things left now in the further reading questions, the final section. So the first of these final questions I have for you, Stefan, is if our listeners want more like Sandalwood Death, where would you send them? And the obvious one would be more Moyen, right? Yeah, definitely recommend uh, Life and Death are Wearing Me Out. Wearing Me Out. It's a very wild story about a guy being executed uh, with in 90, 1949 or 1950 when the uh, communists come and then being reincarnated uh, as an animal and then uh, dying again and being re reincarnated as another animal. So there was a dog, there was a bull, there was a donkey and another one that uh, I can't remember right now. And again, it's told from the perspective of the animals. So it's a story that revolves, oh, so that takes place again in rural China and it's, uh, it's, it tells a 50 year history of China from, so from the 1950 to the 2000s and it's very wild again. Mm, so definitely recommend that. I, I cannot really think of anything. So Moyan mentions uh, Marcus and Faulkner as his influences, though he says that he only read some of their works and didn't dare to read more because he was afraid that they would uh, influence him too much and he would forget what uh, his real self is about and he what he really wants to write. And in his Nobel lectures, lecture, he also mentions uh, Pusun Ling, the author of Strange Tales uh, from Liao Jai uh, with folk spirits and th stuff like that. And um, Moyen says that when he was a child, he believed that everything uh, had a soul, like uh, mm. the tree had souls and the, the animals had souls. And he was always expecting the animals around him to turn into humans. And that's that definitely comes from Pusun Ling. And he also mentions Shang Tsung Wan, uh, the writer from the first half of the 20th century, who wrote this beautiful little novel, Border Town, uh, which is available in English, and I hope someday to translate into Bulgarian as well. Uh, I couldn't really compare those to Moyen, but I guess they are they're, they're his influences. So uh, maybe they were checking out. I mean, they're definitely worth checking out, but I don't know how they compare to Moyen. Excellent. I'll recommend um, for anyone who's interested in reading more books or novels set around the Boxer Rebellion, uh, there is another one which is m more of a love story than this one. We covered it on the show. It was Feng Jitai's A Looking Glass World. That's uh, published in English translation by Sinuous Books. That's a more, I guess it's a more, um, it's not as German, the, the Europeans aren't German centric. We have one main European character, she's French. But like it, it's at the point where the um, what's it called? The Eight Army Alliance has has showed up. So the boxes are taking on uh, all different flavors of foreigners rather than just Germans. And the action okay. happens around Tianjin rather than Shandong. But okay. I, I I kind of mentioned that just to say that I think all the literary uh, impressive feats and 
very vivid characters aside, I think this book's a very interesting little zoomed in snapshot of sort of the boxer uprising because it's it's so particular to Shandong that it's not even combat against all the colonial forces that are in China at that time. It's really just against the German colony. And I'll bet you it's the only thing that exists in English translation in fiction that is about Shandong people versus the um, German soldiers run by von Kettler. And then you get with that an interesting depiction of how the German colonists were working alongside slash sort of protecting themselves with the local authorities. And then triply interesting, who is there but the guy whose name I keep forgetting. <laughs> yeah, Yuan Shikai. Yuan Shikai. Yeah, Yuan Shikai. So if you know, if you go into this novel already knowing who Yuan, Yuan Shikai is, but not realizing sort of who he was before he had his big moment, yeah. like me, that was really interesting too. Cool. Um, so yeah, I think this, like this, the local angle we've talked about, and we've already kind of said the historical angle is not, you shouldn't be t- treating this as a history book, but mm. as a depiction of a very specific slice of history, I think it's great. Maybe that's yeah. not necessarily why Moyan wrote the book, but it might be a nice side effect of it. Yeah, he, uh, well, uh, when I was translating it, I was uh, checking all the historical details that he uses because there are a lot of uh, a lot of them. And I was wondering, has he uh, like, um, researched all this in order to, to write the novel? But I kind of find a, a few, like one or two mistakes that he had made. Uh, for example, he writes that, uh, what was it, on the hats of the imperial officials, there were these gems. Uh, and uh, depending on wh- what gem we wear, uh, this is this means that you're on a, a different position. Like uh, the the higher the position, the more expensive the gem. But what I found out that is that at the end of the Qing Empire, uh, the empire was too poor and they couldn't afford gems. So they kind of replaced them with glass or something like that. Mm. Uh, And when I discovered this mistake, uh, it suddenly struck me that he probably hasn't researched anything. It's just uh, knowledge that he has in his uh, head. And uh, that's very impressive that that he could put all this knowledge into this novel. That's uh, very admirable admirable to me. And I was also thinking that I I read an essay by him. So when when he won the Nobel Prize, a publishing house in China uh, published all of his works. And for some reason, uh, for every novel, there was uh, an introductionary essay by Moyen, but uh, it was the same essay for all the books. Uh, and the essay is called something like that, something like uh, in defense uh, or defending uh, the dignity of the novel. And there he, uh, he says that the novel should be, like we said, uh, long. It should be dense and it should be hard. So by dense, he means that it should include uh, lots of things, like lots of different ideas, lots of different characters, lots of, lots of different thoughts. And this kind of reminded me of this um, of uh, Mikhail Bakhtin's idea of the polyphonic novel, uh, which, uh, according to Bakhtin, uh, the the novel, the 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 virtue of the novel, like what distinguishes it from other genres, is that it it can afford to be polyphonic. It uh, can include different voices, different uh, types of 
of uh, narrating in one text, in one single text. And I think Moyen executes this pretty well. But uh, what Bakhtin is talking about when he does this uh, argument in uh, his research is uh, Dostoevsky's novels. So maybe we can uh, just mention Dostoevsky's name here as well. And we've you've cited an anarchist philosopher. So the ghost of Bajin <laughs> is cheering. Okay, yeah. We've made him happy. Excellent. And you've given me a great thing to cite in the show notes as well. So thank you okay. for that. Yeah. Final. Sure. <laughs> good ideas come at the end of the episode. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's disturbing how long these final sections can can, uh, can drag out. So, Sorry, listeners. <laughs> it's all right. Well, for the ones who don't want the episodes to end, they'll be well served. Our Tanshua episode we did last time was one of the longest ones I've done. Right. What's up with that? I think it was because I was in, in lockdown. Maybe I, I I speak too slow because I, words in English <laughs> come really slow to, to I, me. I think it was partly, I was in lockdown, so I right. didn't care about time. Yeah. Time was the thing I had to fill up. And we were talking about several short stories. Rather right, than and like I, I remember that I really wanted to pee at one point because it, we, we were talking so long and I really could barely hold it in my pants. I've oh a few, several of my best episodes. That's why they've stayed in my memory. Yeah, uh, the one with Ken Leo had a had a toilet break. I think we may okay. have gone. Okay, yeah, time. that was a long one. That was a great one though. Yeah, yeah, I'm privileged he he stuck around so long for that. Anyway, final question for you: uh, What are you reading just now? Well, a lot of things, but uh, one book that I'd like to mention is a book by Umberto Eco, the Italian oh, yeah. uh, novelist and philosopher. So he's written a book about translation, and I saw that it's translated into English, and it's called, let me see, uh, Exer- Experiences in Translation. But the original Italian title is something way more interesting. So it's something like... Um, That's ironic. Uh, <laughs> uh, saying almost the same. Uh, so it's a book about translation and it's called saying almost the same uh, and i like this idea that translations are always almost the same as the original but never the same as the original and it's a really good book um he discusses a lot of the discussions he's had with the, the translators of his works his own works in different languages he also plays around with machine translation and mind you this is like the start of the millennium so uh yeah machine translation not so good but he kind of uh uh, thinks about this as well yeah Mm, and he uh describes some very important aspects of translation and uh, i find it very useful and very entertaining to read excellent what about you what are you reading reading a strangely similar sort of book actually it's a non-fiction and it's called kingdom of characters by an a Taiwanese-American academic, Jing Tzu. And its characters is kind of a pun because it's partly about the Chinese script and partly okay. about various figures from modern Chinese history okay. who try to adapt the script for the modern world. So it, I'm, I'm maybe like four out of seven chapters or something like that through the book. So we've had uh, people in the late Qing, early ROC, trying to um, figure out ways to first make a national standard uh, Mandarin um, and then trying to ad- find a way to adapt Chinese so that it will work via Morse code for sending telegrams, okay. uh, people trying to make Chinese work for typewriters, 
and the chapter I just finished reading today was about um, people, including Lin, Lin Yutang, uh, tried to work out a library categorization system for Chinese writing, because obviously it doesn't have the benefit of an alphabet. Right. And I think we're about to go into the next one will be revolutionary China, and it's going to be pinyin and maybe simplified, uh, simplified Chinese. Sounds very interesting. It's a, it's very readable, and okay. I think a big draw will be at the end of the book where you get into how Chinese was digitized, how it okay. was they worked out how to get it into computer systems. I'm very envious of all the resources about China that you have in English. Like we have nothing in Bulgarian. Yeah, mm. yeah, that's your job. Yeah, yep. On that note, good luck to you. I hope Thanks. you can um, maybe maybe your mission should be to become a teacher so you can make more Stefans to bring more stuff into Bulgarian. Oh, I don't know. I'm trying to. I am actually teaching translation at the university, but uh, no one really, uh, no one's interesting in, no one's interested in like uh, uh, spending their uh, nerves on translating a book and getting uh, almost nothing in fina financial return. So. Yeah, I don't. Yeah. I cannot really make a good case about translating literature from Chinese. You could read them this novel and be like, "Look, just be like these characters." Just yeah, yeah. Do, do don't don't care about anything. Just uh, lead a lead an epic life and die young, and that's it. Like Sun Bing. Yeah, well, Sun Bing, who actually you know. Uh, so the original title actually means sandalwood punishment, not sandalwood yeah. dead. So the sandalwood punishment mm. is like this really, again, sophisticated punishment, like they prepare this uh, long wooden... Oh, yeah, we didn't even get into that. Yeah, stake. stake, right? And they stake the person, but the, the person doesn't die. The person stays alive like for seven days and uh, with the stake uh, yeah. through his body. Yeah. And I'm not... I'll save it for people who read the book, but <laughs> the point where it enters and the point where it exits... It's a horrible mental image. It's horrible to think. Yeah, and it's des des described in a very vivid detail. Mm. In, yeah, yeah. I know we shouldn't be sticking all this stuff on at the end, but there's a very interesting note in Howard Goldblatt's intro yeah. where he says, yeah, so Tan Xiang is sandalwood. That's in my title, but Xing is not. That's punishment. I chose death. Right. Why did I do that? Because this is a very musical novel and I wanted to preserve the music. Because right. partly because the title should be musical, but two because there's a line in the book where someone, in I guess the Chinese says Tan, Xiang, Xing, right. yes, and yes. you you can't really do that if your title is Sandal Wood, punishment, <laughs> doesn't work. He needed a one syllable <laughs> word with a lot of impact, so death is what he chose. Yeah, okay, but you know you could I guess. You you can do it sound melodical in uh, with four syllables as well. I don't know. Sandalwood punishment. The yeah. thing I like about Goldblatt is he has a bit of artistic ambition, and I think yeah, well, he, he managed to create. Should. Yeah, yeah, but they yeah. don't. Some some have it more than others, especially since he's working before a lot of the really good translators in English are out there today. And I think Sandalwood Death is a very. It sounds. It doesn't sound like a translated. Well, maybe it does. I don't know. But it's a very literary, striking title. So yeah, I think good. I would give kudos to him for... It's a good one. And his translation is very precise. That's what I can say about it. I mean, I've 
but I didn't read it. I didn't read the whole thing. But for example, when I stumbled upon something interesting as a translation uh, problem uh, in the original, I would solve it myself, and then I go look how Howard Goldblatt. Uh, uh, has solved it, and sometimes I uh, would discover that I've misunderstood the original. And when I look at Howard Goldblatt's translation, I would say, "Oh, yeah, that's what the, the original actually means." Yeah, so it's very precise, very precise. And right, so about the style of the translation, I wouldn't want to to evaluate it because I'm not a native English speaker. So mm-hmm. you know his Chinese name, right? Kohawen. Right. So Guhawen, if you're listening, we salute you. We wish you'd come on the show, but we understand. Yes. Yes. Uh, so right. m- maybe about uh, life and death and wearing me out. Are wearing me out. That yeah. Cool yeah. To discuss with him. It's not too late. He can. He can still reply to my email. Yeah. That's still. It's still dangling. You can just say he forgot about it. But yeah. Um, well, Stefan, it's been an excellent conversation. Thank you for taking the time to come back on the show. Thank um, you for having me. Yeah. And on behalf of the people of Bulgaria, thank you for translating this work. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm allowed to, to represent your nation, right? Maybe. I don't know. Uh, thank you. Thank you for having me. It's a, I'm a, you know, I'm a great fan of the show. So it's a real pleasure to come here and uh, embarrass myself in front of your listeners. I do it every episode. Right. Highly right. recommended form of embarrassment. Sure. Sure. All right, we've reached the end of the show, as I'm sure you are no doubt aware. I'm going to rock it through the end notes today. So first important end note, Howard Goldblatt, if you're listening, (laughs) come back to me. It's not too late. Um, I'm sure he's not, though. In any case, um, here's here's what you need to know. If you want to support the show and get access to over 100 bonus episodes, go to patreon.com slash trichific, T-R-C-H-F-I-C. You can also support the show via Buy Me A Coffee. You can find that on the show website, all links in the show notes below. As are links to the show's social media, you can follow me on Twitter at, at AngusLikesWords. And the show has its own Instagram at, at trichific, T-R-C-H-F-I-C. And of course, there is discord if you want to talk to other people who enjoy the show that's your lot really of course the best thing you can do to benefit this show is listen to the episodes and spread the words tell your friends tell your teacher and tell the guy that you are going to torture via the sandalwood death assuming that is you work in that sort of profession if not then whatever the equivalent sort of um client would be please don't hurt anyone (laughs) on that note uh Zai Jian, 